And this morning we're looking in Luke, Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, on page 877, if you're following in the Church Bible, page 877. Luke chapter 18, going to read from verses 18 to 27. Luke 18, verses 18 to 27. Let's hear God's Word. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. God, help us to understand this passage, we pray. Please may the Holy Spirit guide us and enable us to respond to what you say to us now. We pray your blessing upon our children as well, that they might learn as Rodney learnt as a child, that he, that they can believe in Jesus. Help them, we pray, Father, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the term Achilles' heel is, as many of you know, a term that relates to someone's weak spot. But in spite of their overall strength, they have one point of weakness, which if they break there at that point, then they collapse completely. And of course, that saying, Achilles' heel, comes from the mythological figure of Achilles, the son of the Greek gods. This was the hero of the Trojan War. Here was someone who possessed great powers of invincibility. According to the Greek poets, uh, the dramatists, Achilles survived many great battles. He was the greatest of all Greek warriors. To his enemies, he appeared invincible until, that is, one day, one day someone from behind him shot an arrow at him, and the arrow hit Achilles on his heel, and he died shortly afterwards. So the man who had appeared confident, who was sure of himself, who was invincible, who was unconquerable, one day his weakness was found out and he crumbled. He fell. I begin there this morning because the, the passage that we're looking at this morning clearly illustrates for us this proverbial Achilles heel. Here is someone who is seemingly a brilliant young man, apparently a successful man, and yet with only one probing sentence from the Lord Jesus, but this brilliant young man's weakness is exposed and he crumbles, and he walks away a very sad man. There are two points this morning I want to say. The first point is extremely long compared to the second point. The second point is very short, so just relax when we get to the end of the first one. The first thing I want to talk about is simply the conversation that Jesus has with this man in verses 18 to 23. When you look at this event in the other Gospels, it's also recorded in Matthew and Mark, you get a little variation there in the detail. For example, whilst Luke describes this person who comes to Jesus as a ruler, verse 18, Matthew describes him as being young. Mark describes this man running up to Jesus and falling 
at his feet. So we've got three men looking at this same event from three different angles. When we bring them all together, we get a really full picture. The mental picture is of a rich young man, a ruler of some sort, probably a ruler in his local synagogue, but he comes running up from nowhere and falls at the feet of Jesus. And you imagine him panting. I was was chasing Daniel Dyer on Thursday night, and I was panting heavily, just running a few yards. Here's a man come running up to Jesus, falls at his feet, panting, and he asks Jesus the question in verse 18, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here is someone concerned about his future state, even as a young man. He's disturbed about eternity. He wants a, a peace of mind for himself about what lies for himself beyond death. He wants now in his young age some assurance of what will become of him one day. What should I do to make sure I go to heaven? That's basically what the question means. What should I do to make sure I get to heaven? What would you expect Jesus to say at that point? Do you notice before Jesus actually answers his question, first of all, he picks him up on his understanding of what is good. Why do you call me good? said. No one is good except God alone. And the fact that this young man calls Jesus a teacher isn't surprising. Uh, Even some of the people who opposed Jesus, they would have viewed him as a teacher, just a teacher they didn't like listening to. They didn't like what he taught that teacher. But it's the fact here that this man describes Jesus as good. That seems strange. Was he trying to flatter Jesus and referring to him as as a good teacher? I don't think he was doing that. And based on what Jesus says next to him, I I think the issue here is that this young man had a misunderstanding of what good means. He measured good based on his own knowledge, his own experience of goodness. And so from what he had heard and maybe what he had watched of Jesus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him as a good person. And of course, the Lord Jesus is a good person. He's, he's the Son of God. He is truly good. But, but Jesus here is wanting to probe this man's understanding of good in, in, in terms of how God defines good. We tend to define who is good and who isn't based on comparing ourselves with others. We look at so-and-so and we compare what they do with another person and what they do or what they don't do and based on that and we throw ourselves in there naturally because we're proud people we throw ourselves in as a balancing comparison and we we compare to see who's good and who's not so good reminds me of that sketch in the 1960s not that I was born in the early 60s but I still remember it later on in life the class system with John Cleese and the two Ronnies and Ronnie Barker in the middle says I look up to him because he is upper class, but I look down on him because he is lower class. And the guy at the bottom says, I know my place. We grade one another based on what we perceive of others. And so, yes, some are good, in inverted commas, and others aren't. And there certainly were some who weren't good, as this young man would have defined good in those days. That's what he's done here with Jesus. He's watched Jesus. He's listened to Jesus. He's judged Jesus to be a nice man. He's not like the others he knows, but Jesus is a decent, nice man. He's a good teacher. But the problem here is that that's not how God, that's not how God defines good. God defines good rather differently. That's why Jesus then directs this rich young ruler 
to God's law. Why did he do that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5 verse 20, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they, they were. Let me say that again. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. So Jesus says to this man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false uh, witness. Honor your father and mother. There's only five of the Ten Commandments that God gave. God gave those commandments to show us what goodness looks like, what God would define as good. And when you look at those five specific commands that Jesus mentions, they, they very much relate to loving our neighbor as ourself. Here was someone with a wrong view of what is good, and so the Lord Jesus now brings God's law alongside him to show him this is what good really looks like. And in particular, what good looks like in him loving others around him. You know the commandments. You come to me saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, well you know what you have to do. Have you kept those commandments? I remember Paul says, God gave us those commandments to show us how sinful we are. And this man says, yes, I've kept them all from my youth. I'm fine. I've kept all those commandments. Wow, wow. Here was someone claiming to have a high morality before Jesus, someone claiming to live as the law commanded him to live. And if you think about it, if Jesus has just told him that only God is good, this rich young man is basically saying, and me, and me, because I've kept the commandments. The law which was given to show us what true goodness looks like and to show us, as Paul says, how far short we fall of that goodness, since none of us ever keep it perfectly, that law should expose us. And yet this man says, well, I've kept God's law. He's kept God's law since his youth, and yet he still has this empty feeling inside. Matthew records him saying, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? In my mind comes that picture of the jigsaw, the dilemma where you have finished the whole jigsaw, and you often get them from charity shops, where you buy it and it's been opened, it's been used before, and so you bring it home and you set it all out and you're beginning to do it and you're nearly there, you think you're there, and there's one piece missing, one final piece that's not in the box, and that gaping hole has this level of frustration that ruins everything else. You've done every, so much more of everything else, and yet that one missing piece is what niggles you and frustrates you. This young man claiming to have kept all the law is frustrated by this one missing piece in his life, frustrated with his own pursuit of everlasting life, doing his best to keep the commandments, and yet, like many good, clean, living, decent people today, there's something profoundly missing. He knew something wasn't right. He has no confidence. He has no assurance. He has no peace about eternity. That's why he's there asking Jesus, good teacher, you tell me. You tell me, what do I still lack? What have I got to do to get into heaven? He sounds as if, I'll do anything. Just tell me what I have to do. And Jesus tells him in verse 22, one thing you still lack. What would it be, I wonder? Make a donation. Uh, come to uh, church. Come to Wellbeck Road Evangelical Church. 
That'll get you into heaven. Would he say that? Help out at the youth center. Help out in the drop-in center. I wonder what you would have told this rich young man about getting into heaven. Shouldn't Jesus have just said to him, well, you've got to believe in me. Just believe in me and you'll get into heaven. Isn't that the gospel message that Paul told the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 when the jailer asks him and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells the person, well, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus doesn't do that here because Jesus can see the weakness in this man that this man needs to see for himself. So with one sentence, Jesus reveals this man's Achilles heel. This young, enthusiastic, good man then crumbles and walks away. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Why didn't Jesus tell this young man to trust in him? Because the man was trusting in himself, his own strength, his own wealth. And until someone sees why in themselves they need Jesus, then just telling them to trust in Jesus is like you telling someone who feels perfectly healthy, who feels perfectly well, you know, you would feel so much better if you went to the doctor. You really need to go to the doctor because he'll make you well. Well, I don't feel unwell. Why would I go to the doctor? Before you and I can know Jesus as our Savior, we need to know why we need Jesus as our Savior. We need to sense it with an overwhelming sense that I must get to Jesus for my salvation. Because Jesus is the only one who fills that missing piece. He's the only one who can give that sense of peace and that sense of certainty of heaven. Until they get to Jesus, then people need to realize in their conscience and in their mind they need Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those commandments that were given by God as an expression of himself, of his own goodness, they were meant to expose our need of Jesus. They were like a plumb line, a plumb line to show how crooked, how not good the human heart is. And the law does that. The law exposes how crooked at heart every one of us is. When we compare ourselves with what God commands of us, we see what we're meant to do and we see what we're not meant to what we're not meant to do. And so it shows us how not good we are. It shows us as God sees us. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good. Not a single one. That's what God sees from his viewpoint and how he measures our level of goodness compared to his standard of goodness. And the plumb line test of God's law reveals that. But here with this man, instead of using God's law to see that, to see how not good he was, this man was using God's law to try and make himself good. That's not how the plumb line works. A plumb line sets a standard of straightness. We're moving into our new house, and so we're doing lots of decorating We've ordered some uh, wallpaper. I'm already panicking about putting the wallpaper up, but I know I'll have to use a plumb line to get a straight line. I can't even use the corner of the house because how can I be sure that is straight? But I use a plumb line to tell me definitely, categorically, that is a straight line. And I measure the wallpaper against that straight line. That is the standard. That is the law. And anything short of that standard 
is a sin. It's wrong. It's not good enough. It may look good enough, but it's not right. God's law exposes that. God's law does not make us right. God's law exposes we're not right. Hence, we need a Savior. So here was this young man trying to make himself right, trying to make himself straight, striving to keep God's law in order to try and make himself good enough for heaven. And yet deep down inside, he thought, this isn't working. This isn't working. I'm trying, I'm trying, but I still, there's something not right about this. Maybe that is the case for you this morning. You're evidently religious because here you are sat in a church hall. You're trying your best. You're really trying your best, but deep down inside, you know there's something missing still. There's something fundamentally uncomfortable still in my life. And I want to put it to you this morning, that missing piece is Jesus. Not religion, but Jesus Christ. So, so Jesus here is coming to this man in love for this man, wanting to help this man, for him to see how much he needs a Savior. But I've kept the law, he says. So Jesus gets more personal. He applies a particular commandment, the very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And he applies that plumb line to this man's life. And when he does that, he sees how the man's life is indeed crooked. It's his wealth his love of wealth, his lust for wealth. Wealth is as a god to him. That was the test. Which of these did he really want more? Did he want treasure in his wallet or did he want treasure in heaven? Maybe you imagine the scene. I often try and imagine these gospel events and look on the man's face. And we notice here the man says nothing more. There's just silence from him. He's, he's crumbled, you see. He's been silenced by the exposing sentence of the Lord Jesus Christ and so his face drops he turns and Mark tells us Mark 10 22 he went away sorrowful the question often is you know where is this man today I wonder obviously he's dead but where is he we know nothing more he may well have gone back to his old way of life of just trying to keep the commandments having this niggling uncomfortableness inside but as we do we distract ourselves from that don't we we take up something new to try and hide this niggling feeling inside that's not right. So we do something new for a while until it raises its ugly head again. So we do something else new. That's maybe what, what he did. In contemporary terms, maybe he probably changed church. I'm not going back there again if that's what they teach. That teaching makes me feel uncomfortable. It doesn't make me feel warm and cozy. That teaching exposes me. That teaching challenges me. But actually what Jesus said, what Jesus taught that day, only exposed what lay in the man's heart. This was his Achilles heel. He loved wealth in actual fact more than what he wanted of eternal life. So he walked away from the Savior. He walked away from the only one who could save him. Well, our second closing point this morning is the conversion that, that Jesus gives. That answer that Jesus said to the young man, even the disciples are amazed by it. The disciples of that day believed the culture of that day. They, uh, they believed the, the usual belief of that day was that if, if you're, you're, you're healthy, if you're wealthy, as this man seemed to be, he's a running, 
wealthy man. If your life is successful, then you are blessed by God and you're definitely going to heaven. And so they are flabbergasted by what Jesus says. And Jesus says, look, it's not necessarily true that wealthy people go to heaven. In fact, look at verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's not that wealthy people are banned from heaven, but materialistic people generally don't see their need of a savior. They often see themselves as having done it all their own way, a sort of Frank Sinatra kind of religion. I'll do it my way and I'm sure I'll be okay in the end. So why do I need a savior? And the disciples ask the, the, the question, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers in that last verse, verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You see, friends, none of us can save ourselves. That plumb line of God's law only exposes in us how unable we are to save ourselves. Maybe you're thinking, if I try and obey, if I try and do what God, I think, wants me to do, then surely that will be enough. But in actual fact, the more you try that, the more you'll discover, I can't do it. I can't consistently do it. Maybe I can do it on Sunday morning for a little while, but I can't consistently do it. I need someone else, someone outside of me to come near to me and save me. And that's what Jesus Christ does. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The bad news is what the law exposes in us, that, that we cannot save ourselves. The good news of Jesus Christ is that there is hope for lawbreakers like you and me. There is hope for spiritual criminals. The biblical word is sinners. We break, we transgress God's law. There's hope for people like that in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, what we're saying is, I've given up my old way of life. I've given up trying to save myself. Now I am depending on Jesus Christ. Now I believe that he is the one who came into the world for me because God knew I could not save myself. So he sent his son to save me. The one who perfectly obeyed God, the one who knew no sin of his own, and yet he went to the cross and bore the penalty for all our sins. All the wrong that we do was reckoned to Jesus Christ and he went to the cross and was punished in our place so that whoever, whatever their background, however far off you may be from God today, doesn't matter how bad you are, doesn't matter how disobedient you are, all that matters is that you give it up and come to this one person, Jesus Christ. It's impossible for you, but it's very possible for God if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You see, he is the missing factor in our lives. We were made to know God. God created us to know him and to enjoy him, but our sin gets in the way. Our disobedient heart gets in the way. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, everything fits together. Everything fits into slot. And God is able to do what today you feel utterly unable to do. He can do it. I encourage you to come to Jesus Christ this morning, to rely on him, to trust in him, and he will indeed save you. May God help every one of us to do that today.